First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. And even though I was formerly a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy, in order that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for hope to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We're all familiar with the sad statistics concerning young people and church attendance, that there has been a a flight from the churches of millennials, people born toward the end of the 20th century. But there's another flight, another exodus that is taking place. It's much smaller nonetheless very significant and it also involves young people as as well as some older people and that is a flight from evangelical protestant churches to roman catholicism to anglicanism to greek orthodoxy number of articles that i have read over the past few years talk about what people are searching for that they find in these high churches, these churches that have a, a liturgy, although, of course, all churches have a liturgy, but these churches have a formalism and a structure, a solemnity that people in our disconnected postmodern era are lacking. Many millennials interviewed for some of these articles state that their lives have no meaning, they have no structure, they have no no hierarchy, and so these churches give them what they're looking for in the, in, the, in the liturgies, in the rituals, in the incense, in the Latin, and in the cathedrals, the sense of stability, the sense of, of thousands of years of duration that many modern churches lack. High church solemnity, that's what it's called, the high church It's a reaction, perhaps, to the shallow thrills of modern evangelicalism. In fact, one person who actually became a pastor in the Presbyterian Church before then going over to Roman Catholicism, uh, excuse me, he was in the Methodist Church before going over to Roman Catholicism, mentioned that his experience in Methodism was basically precious moments Christianity. You know those cute little dolls? And it's not just the Methodists. So much of church today is so shallow, so meaningless, so lacking in any structure, so chaotic even, that if people are looking for stability in their life, they're not going to find it in many, many churches of a Protestant denomination. Formal liturgy, stated prayers, repeated patterns, a place for everything, the invocation the, the doxology, the benediction, 
the homily, all of these things have their place. And just like the, the Sabbath itself gives us a cadence of life every seven days, so also people find stability in the cadence of the service on the Sabbath. And it's hard to argue that there is some, some attractiveness to that. On the Reformed side, we were taught in, in uh, seminary how to craft a sermon in Reformed homiletics, how to craft a sermon as if it were some piece of art that we were sculpting during the week and ready to present it on Sunday to the congregation. It seemed rather, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, an abomination. The whole idea of three points in a poem, a predictable pattern of a service, everything being done decently and in order. That was kind of the mantra, because God does everything decently and in order. All church services need to be decently done decently and in order. Now, it's true that predictable patterns are probably better off for the congregation than meandering ramblings or high-volume diatribes. I have never liked screaming preachers. I don't know how you are, but throughout the, the years of being a believer, whenever I would listen to a, a, a preacher yelling at me, it just reminded me too much of my childhood. <laughs> it made me want to say, yes, sir. <laughs> okay. that, you know, those kind of, and you, and you see them, the televangelists, and you, know, you, you listen to them, you think, this is not, this is not the way it should be. And so there are many who are, who are saying, you know, we're going to return to the clerical robes. We're going to return even to the, to the incense, you know, of the Greek Orthodox Church. We're going to return to the, the stability of the years of the Roman Catholic Church, the hierarchy that has been there for 2,000 years. And in that stability, we're going to find stability in our, in our lives, in our postmodern, millennial, meaningless and aimless lives. But is all of this pleasing to God? As we craft our sermons or as we build our liturgies around what people are looking for psychologically, instability that they need, structure that they need, are they to find it in the liturgy of the church? Does it please God or does it, does it merely satisfy a psychological need of man? I think we can paraphrase the words of the Lord through the prophet when he says, is it for me that you have worn your clerical robes and intoned your dry, predictable liturgies all these years? Is it for God's glory that these things are done? Or is it for the stability that is just as beneficial to the clergy as it is to the laity? The sameness and the uniformity that happens week in and week out, service after service. It's almost a numbing effect, is it not? Where is the rigidity, the rigid formality in the prophets? When you read the prophets and you read their, their um, often seemingly disconnected prophecies, where is the formal rigidity, for example, in Amos, when he says, A lion has roared, who will but fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? prophesy? Where is the rigidity of that? Where is the structure? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? And I think if we look 
at Paul's letters, we find that the balance that is needed in all biblical preaching is evident there. And that balance is not a rigidity of pattern or a repetition of three points in a poem or alliteration with every point starting with the same letter. Rather, there is a, a, a feast of doctrinal meat in Paul's letters, peppered, spiced throughout with doxology. Not at the end of the sermon, but interspersed throughout his letters. Like verse 17, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul, that doesn't belong there in your liturgy. I mean, you're not even out of chapter 1 yet. What are you doing with a doxology this early? Full of faithful words, worthy of full acceptance, with a context that guided Paul throughout, and that is knowing that he was revealing the glory of God to all of creation. And therefore, in the midst of his doctrinal treatises, he often could not refrain from interrupt, interrupting doctrine with doxology. Now, I've heard a lot of different styles of preaching advocated in seminaries, including my own seminary experience, how we should preach expositional, topical, the imperative of preaching, an excellent book written by one of my professors. All of these things having uh, true and biblical facets of what biblical preaching is all about. But you know, I've never heard anything said about doxological preaching. Preaching not just to the glory of God, but preaching to the praise of the glory of God. That's the type of preaching that Paul gave in his letters. And I do believe that these are very much sermons written down. Preaching that does not result in spontaneous praise to God falls short of the biblical mark. It's not truly biblical preaching. If we do not respond as Paul does but rather wait until the liturgy allows us to say the Lord's Prayer, then this is not biblical preaching. It is not, it is not the vision of God that Paul had and, and tries to convey, and I believe the Holy Spirit trying to convey the revelation of God in His Word to each of our hearts, to each of our minds, to each of our eyes, so that the only response that we could possibly have is doxology. The giving of glory to God. The book of Hebrews. Probably the closest thing that we have in the New Testament to a sermon. And as we studied through the book of Hebrews, we saw that its, its form is less like an epistle and more like a sermon. And the style of that sermon is so like Paul that many over the years have believed that he is the author. I do not agree with them. Nonetheless, the pattern is, someone, is from someone who evidently spent a great deal of time influenced by the apostle. It is like a song. It's like an extended psalm. It's like a prophecy of the Old Testament. It's full of deep 
doctrinal content, and yet it's peppered with doxology. Praise to God through Jesus Christ, his son, and our Lord. You read through that book, and, and I know you're not supposed to have favorites. You know, you're not supposed to have a favorite book of the Bible. And, and so I don't have a favorite book of the Bible except for the book of Hebrews. <laughs> it, it is just so alive, isn't it? It is so full of Jesus. And you can't read a single paragraph without praising the Lord, praising God through Jesus Christ. The beauty, if we return to Paul, as I said, I don't believe he wrote the, the letter or the sermon to the Hebrews, but if we return to, to Paul's pattern, the beauty of it is he didn't have one. There have been many attempts, and, and I have uh, several shelves filled with books written by theologians who have finally found Paul's pattern. Why are there so many of them then? Is every attempt to outline Paul's writings never achieves full acceptance? Someone else will read it in a completely different light. Peter, as I've many, many times mentioned, Peter gives us the best outline of Paul there ever can be when he says there are some things there hard to understand. So it, 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 it's the beauty of Paul's pattern that he doesn't have one and that even though he's giving us what we have to acknowledge is the meat of our faith. The apostle was chosen by God to suffer for the greatness of the revelation that would be given to him. And through him that revelation was given to us. And so much of the doctrine of our faith comes through Paul's pen. And yet, as I've said, it's peppered. It's seasoned with doxology. One author says the train of reflection into which he had been led naturally brought the thought of God very prominent before his face. Should this not be a characteristic of all preaching? Should not the preaching of every single sermon, every single discussion, every single teaching that comes out of God's word bring to each of our faces God prominently? What else should come before our minds when we sit under the teaching of God's Word? Should we ourselves, me, myself, and I, our needs, our problems, is that what should come before us? Our health, our prosperity? Should politics come before us? What else can bring forth a spontaneous, not, not a liturgically predictable, but a spontaneous doxology, but the person and the nature of our God? You listen to a sermon that is talking about how, how you need this and how this will help you. You listen to a sermon that talks about the political climate in which we live and, and how we need to join together and, and do this or that to make our world a better place. You listen to a sermon about the poor that are among us and how we are to, to give more and to help more and to be more. Do any of these things put before your eyes the glory of the grace of God in Jesus Christ? Do any of them produce within you a doxology. Praise to God for his immeasurable grace. 
Consider the flow of Paul thus far in chapter 1. He, he starts out by charging Timothy, whom he has left in Ephesus, that Timothy would charge other men not to, che- not to teach or preach strange doctrines. In verse 5, he tells us that the substance of true biblical preaching is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Then he goes on in verse 15, I think, to, to kind of summarize what he's going to be saying throughout the rest of this epistle. And that is that faithful word. This is a faithful word and, and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Well, now this thought immediately brings to Paul's mind his own salvation and how he was a blasphemer. And as we've looked at before, he doesn't lament the fact that he was an alcoholic, that he beat his wife, that he did drugs, that he extorted from his company on his expense account, but rather that he persecuted Jesus Christ. That was his, that was the sin that made him in his own eyes the chiefest, the foremost among sinners. And the thought of that salvation, that grace, that mercy that God has displayed through Jesus Christ, resulted in a spontaneous giving of praise, literally now unto the King of the ages, undying, unseen, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Do we not teach our children that the amen belongs at the end, right before the meal? Do we not in our, in our own lives, in our own worship, do we not put the amen at the end? And is that not contrary to Paul? This is not the only place in his letters where the amen shows up where it doesn't belong. There are half a dozen at least. We're going to look at a few of them this evening. Where Paul, as I said, goes from doctrine, doctrine that is by no means dry, but is living and active, and, and just, it's like it lights a wick, a fuse, inside of his own heart, and he's the one writing it. It's like me. My children say the only person that uniformly laughs at my jokes is me. You know, I mean, I'm even laughing before I finish it. And Paul, and that's not, you know, that's just my nature, but, you know, what about my preaching? You know, should that not light a, a, a fuse inside my own heart as it does in Paul's to where Paul is often chastised by modern scholars for his incredibly poor grammar. He can't even get through a whole sentence before he breaks off into something else, doxology. Because of the nature of, of, of his awareness of what it is he's preaching, what it is he's bringing to us, that this is the word of God. The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? And so we conservative evangelicals have been trained where to put the amen. Now, there are many different uses in evangelical churches of the amen. And... Um, some of them, I think, probably don't need to be practiced in the Church of Jesus Christ. For example, the churches where amen is said to everything. You know, the, the preacher is talking about the upcoming fellowship dinner. 
And you know, Sister Margaret's going to bring her potato casserole. Amen! No, that's not where it belongs. Or how about the churches where the amen is, is, um, is requested by the preacher? Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen for this? Is that right? I, I, let me tell you, brother. <laughs> if you have to ask for it, then you, you don't deserve it. If you have to ask for it, then what you just said doesn't draw it out. Then there are sermons that are, draw, draw, that are drowned out. And I, I have been in a few churches where you can't even hear the sermon because of all the amens that are coming up from the congregation. And so, yes, there are abuses. But of these abuses, um, the most egregious might be where the entire sermon is preached without a single amen. Until the benediction is given at the end. Now, we think that that's, that's the solemnity. We have our own form of high church liturgy that, that we've been taught, especially within reform circles. And I told you about the news report where the, the Presbyterian Church installed motion sensors on their lights in order to save money. The only problem was all the lights went off halfway through the sermon. <laughs> that, is not, that is not the image that we get of the type of praise that God desires. We read the Psalms where we're told to praise the Lord with harp, with lyre, with lute, with cymbals, with dancing. And we somehow have convinced ourselves that rigidity and formality pleases God. That we should sit in our seats and be quiet until the appropriate time to say amen, which is always at the end. But Paul was spontaneous. And yet, he wasn't um, chaotic about it. His spontaneous doxologies were specific. They had a very clear source in what he was just saying. For example, he glorifies God in judgment. Romans chapter 1, verse 25, Paul writes, For this reason God gave them up to the depravity of their lusts. And you're thinking, this is not good. Because they exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Wait a minute. How do you get a doxology out of that? Well, because in his eyes, he just the, the, the sin of the wicked just brought before Paul's eyes the majesty of the Creator and all of the honor that is due him. And he could not help but say, He is blessed forever. Amen. Glorifying God in wisdom. Romans chapter 11, verse 36. Verse 25, Paul writes, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And this is right in the midst of one of the most profound treatises ever written on the people and the purpose of Israel. A people that have been 
hardened, a temporary blindness brought upon them that the Gentiles might be grafted in, a people whose apostasy, whose rejection of God's Messiah has meant salvation to the world. And so even in the, in the fact that his own countrymen, people for whom he said, I would, I would even be accursed if it would mean their salvation, brings to Paul's mind the wisdom of God, the depths of wisdom that is past finding out, and brings to his lips, Amen. Praising God, glorifying God in his provision. How often do we do this? Philippians chapter 4, verse 20, Paul writes in verse 19, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And even glorifying God for His glory. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. Paul writes, And this will be made manifest at the proper time by the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen nor can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. These amens are scattered throughout Paul's teaching. And as I've tried to, to use with the metaphor, it's, it's like the spice, the pepper. It, it gives life, to the congregation, to the preaching, and to the hearing of God's Word. Because it flows from the life that God has given each one of us in Jesus Christ. The topic is always God. It's not someone's casserole. It's not some joke that the preacher told. It's not some truth about the political world around us. It's always God. And it's always the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The attributes of God, His glory, His dominion, His blessing, His honor, His power, His majesty, His wisdom, and His might. Any, any one of these attributes, whenever it comes up in Paul's mind and goes down on Paul's paper... It draws forth from the Apostle a doxology. And I would maintain that it should be the same with each of us. That we should, those of us who are the ministers of God's Word, should strive in our prayers. That we would have the same burning within us as we read God's Word that Paul had in writing it. That even as we craft our sermon, as we sit in our study, we're on our screen porch. That seems not quite so solemn. As we're sitting there writing our thoughts down, that we would also have doxological praise because of the great God who has saved us. Not only preaching to the glory of God, but also, as I said earlier, to the praise of the glory of God. And I, I am convinced through my years in, in Reformed seminaries, reading Reformed works, listening to Reformed preachers, that Reformed preachers need to learn the difference. Preaching to the glory of God and also preaching to the praise of the glory of God. 
Preaching that acknowledges that God is glorious and has done a great work. Versus preaching that draws out from the pulpit and from the pew praise to the glory of God's grace. For our God desires to be praised. Our God deserves to be praised. I am not, I think you know, advocating a cacophony of amens. I am not advocating a, a, a liturgy of amens where we replace the formality of the high church with the chaos and the cacophony of amens of what we might call low church liturgy. Another author says that the praise in Paul's doxologies are no vain repetition of a pattern or formula, but each is different, appropriate, and often unexpected. It's not something that we can simply work into our liturgy. It's something that God, through the Holy Spirit, has to work into our hearts. And again, to paraphrase the prophet Amos, the Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy the gospel of Jesus Christ has been preached. Who can but praise? Let us pray. Father, we do ask that you would set our hearts on fire. We know that that image is so overworked in the modern church, the image of fire. And yet when we read Paul, we see that his heart was set on fire by his experience with Jesus Christ. And the revelation that you granted to him caused that fire to burn ever hotter. And Father, we pray that you might grant to us that the understanding of what you have done for us, the knowledge of our sin and of your holy judgment that brought forth praise from Paul, the knowledge of your wisdom in, in bringing about a plan of revelation, a revelation of redemption that no man could have come up with and, and no man could have figured out. That brought forth praise from Paul. The glory of the grace that you have shown us through Jesus Christ. That brought forth praise from Paul. And the knowledge that you will provide all that we need through the riches of your storehouse through Christ Jesus. That brought forth praise from Paul. All of your attributes, God, whenever they come before us, might we praise you. Even in the midst of a sentence stopping and praising you with our amen. Father, we ask that you would stir up our hearts in praise to your glory. And we ask in Jesus' most holy and praiseworthy name. Amen. Please stand this evening for the benediction from Romans chapter 15, <clears throat> verses 5 and 6. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement, grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.